Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Okay, welcome everyone. Uh, Welcome to the LSE for this hybrid event. My name is Ima Bongu Moren, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of International History. And I'm also a faculty associate at the International Inequalities Institute here at the LSE. It is my great pleasure uh, to be here as chair to welcome Professor Hazel Carby and Ruby Hembron to both our online audience and our audience here in the Sheikh Sayyid Theatre. Hazel Carby is the Charles C. and Dorothea S. Dilley Professor Emeritus of African American Studies and Professor Emeritus of American Studies at Yale University. She is a Fellow of the Royal Society of Arts and an Honorary Fellow of the Learned Society of Wales. She is the Centennial Professor at the LSE's International Inequalities Institute this year and was the Roth Visiting Distinguished Scholar at Dartmouth College last year. Her most recent book, Imperial Intimacies, A Tale of Two Islands, was selected as one of the books of the year 2019 by the Times Literary Supplement and was awarded the prestigious British Academy's Nayef Al-Rodhan Prize for Global Understanding in 2020. Hazel Carby is, of course, not just known for this outstanding book, but she is also the author or co-author of many other works that have been foundational to the fields of Black British, Black feminist, and more broadly, African diaspora studies, including authoring Cultures in Babylon, Black Britain and African America, Race Men, Reconstructing Womanhood, The Emergence of the Afro-American Woman Novelist, and of course, for co-authoring the seminal, The Empire Strikes Back, Race and Racism in 70s Britain. All of her work has been foundational to my own research, teaching and thinking. And I'm also sure for so many of you here today and online, we have been so deeply influenced by your words and your teaching. And that is why it is such a privilege for all of us to be here today to hear you speak about your current research. Let me now turn to introduce Ruby Hembron. Ruby Hembron is an Adivasi cultural practitioner based in Calcutta, India, and an Atlantic Fellow for Social and Economic Equity. She is the founder of Adivani First Voices, an archiving and publishing outfit of and by Adivasis, the indigenous peoples of India. Her work has been addressing issues of non-representation, suppression or appropriation of indigenous cultural expressions and claiming Adivasi's stake in historical and contemporary social, cultural and literary spaces and as peoples. In this event tonight, Hazel Carby will be discussing and showing the work of Indigenous artists who are responding to environmental and ecological crises and degradation. These important works focus on urgent environmental issues while contextualizing them within the wider history 
of settler colonialism and racial capitalism. Harby's talk will be followed by comments from Ruby Hembron on the topic of art as activism for indigenous peoples. And Hazel's talk will be around 50 minutes and then Ruby will comment for around 10 minutes. Okay, so now for some housekeeping. For Twitter users, uh, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSEIII. This event is being audio recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. As usual, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to our two speakers and we'll hopefully have around 25 to 30 minutes for questions. For our online audience, you can submit your questions via the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Please let us know your name and affiliation, and we're particularly keen to hear from students and alumni, so please let us know who you are. And for those of you here in the theatre, I will let you know when we will open the floor for questions. If you can raise your hand, and then when I indicate, you can pose your question, and a mic will be sort of sent to you in your direction. In the same way as our online audience, please provide your name and affiliation before posing your question. And I will try my best to ensure a range of questions uh, from both our audience online and from all of you here in the room. But now, without further ado, I am delighted to hand over to Hazel Carby, and I ask you to join me in giving the warmest of welcomes to her. Good evening, everyone. A band of light reflected across the waters of Morgan Lake, New Mexico, leads our eyes from the center foreground to a power plant on the Navajo reservation. The Four Corners power plant, one of the largest coal-fired generating stations in the United States. In this photograph, it is entirely in shadow as dark as the more than 8 million tons of bituminous coal each year that fuels it. Morgan Lake is not a geological formation. It was built in 1963 to serve as a cooling pond for the plant with water constantly replenished from the San Juan River. Through the play of light and shadow, Diné photographer Will Wilson visualizes in pixels what is not easily recognized in daily life, a narrative practice of counting the dots. In this example of his work, light is reserved for the three rectangular waste ponds to the left, for the scar of the surface mine behind the plant and ascends from the chimney carrying atmospheric depositions of mercury onto the Navajo Nation's land, animals, people, and water. Dark is the line of coal refuse mimicking hills and mesas in shape and forming an intermediate horizon which cradles the power station. Dark navy blue shadows of waste extend their reach across the photograph, 
just as the tentacles of toxicity spread into human and non-human communities and seep into groundwater. Toward the horizon stands the sacred shiprock, behind which are the Chuska Mountains. Vegetation is brown, roads, the edges of ponds, and the railway from the mine to the power station appear scored into the landscape, razor-edged sharp. This is not the Morgan Lake of New Mexico tourist brochures and websites, where it is represented as a tempting cobalt blue, offering over 1,200 acres of windsurfing, boating, and fishing in water that is 75 degrees year-round. Wilson tells a very different story. This aquatic environment is uninviting. Its palette of mineral gray evoking the hidden dangers to humans and wildlife that consume fish, along with aluminum particles, mercury, and selenium, among other contaminants. Swimming in the lake is banned. This is a detail. A forbidding presence saturated in blue-gray, the power station seems to emerge from the mounds of toxic coal refuse, which leach iron, manganese, and aluminum residues. A weighty imposition on the landscape, an aberration rather than an integral part of it, the plant's massive solidity of steel, concrete, and brick contrasts dramatically to the fringe of sagebrush and pinyon pine along the shoreline, stubbornly clinging to life. The sky is ominous, permeated with washes of greys against the light. Its color evokes pollution, rendering visible the emissions of nitrogen oxides and sulfur dioxide that cannot be seen but that have penetrated the bodies of land, water, plants, animals, and humans for decades. In the bottom third of the image, the chimneys are reflected in the water, though the solidity of the main power plant structures dissolve into gray streets and ripples of movement. Can we imagine its disappearance? as we must imagine the disappearance of all coal-fired power plants. The foreground provides the only warm colors in the image, a few splotches of madder brown and the sienna of grass fronds blowing in the wind. The warmth of these colors resonates with life. And I realize that here on the bank closest to us, is the alternative meaning of plant, a generation of life as opposed to this form of energy production, which extinguishes life by what Rob Nixon has described as the process of slow violence. The works of Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, 
Sven Lundqvist and Raoul Peck and others have exposed the long durée of the inherently genocidal impulse of settler colonialism and European imperialism. I have written elsewhere about the early colonization of the land the English would call New England, which would transform the Atlantic shore from a thriving place into a nightmarish landscape of death. The genocidal impulses of English colonists were evident in their massacre of the Pequots in 1637, in their subsequent attempts to eradicate Pequot culture, language and practices, in their practice of total war, which went beyond the murder and imprisonment of indigenous peoples to the destruction of the environment that sustained them, their habitations, stores of food, fields of corn, and in their declaration that the English stated their right to settle the land they called Connecticut by right of conquest. Speaking in New York City in January 1886, some 16 years before he became president of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt gave a lecture entitled Ranch Life in the West that expressed his views of indigenous peoples. Quote, I don't go so far as to think that the only good Indians are the dead Indians, but I believe nine out of every 10 are, and I shouldn't like to inquire too closely into the case of the 10th, end of quote. Of course, the death of the Indian has always been inextricably tied to land, the theft of land to steal its resources, the domination of people and the environment in order to sustain the forms of settler colonialism, racial capitalism and extraction that have had and continue to have such catastrophic consequences. But indigenous eradication was and is also a cultural practice, the forcible erasure of cultural identity. One of the most refined methods of cultural genocide adopted in North America was the system of residential Indian schools which attempted to steal the future through the theft of generations of indigenous children. From 1819 to 1969, the federal Indian boarding school system in the US consisted of 408 federal schools across 37 states, or what were then territories, including 21 schools in Alaska, and seven schools in Hawaii. More than 150,000 children from hundreds of indigenous communities across Canada were forcibly taken from their parents by the government 
and sent to what were called residential schools. Funded by the state and run by churches, they were designed to assimilate and Christianize indigenous children by ripping them from their parents, their culture and their community. The children were often referred to as savages and forbidden from speaking their languages or practicing their traditions. Many were physically and sexually abused and thousands of children never made it home. The last of Canada's 139 residential schools for indigenous children closed in 1998. The horrors of attempts to take the Indian out of the Indian by settler colonial states, the severing of community ties to place, the disruption of complex and multiple ecological relations and dependencies following land dispossession and forced removals, and the thousands of indigenous children who were taken into and disappeared within the walls of residential schools are still not generally acknowledged. The generational trauma of the severing of children from family and community, the consequences for the children of their subjection to multiple forms of physical, psychological, and sexual abuse and violation are even now not fully exposed in spite of recent federal investigation. In the United States, the simultaneous growth of fictional indigeneity that has fed the movie and tourist industries and become ubiquitous in the naming of sports teams and the arsenal of US military weapons is nothing less than grotesque. North American popular culture, notes Thomas King, was and is, quote, littered with savage, noble, and dying Indians. A line of shadowed figures on horseback, shapes with little definition of clothes or bodies, ride away from the camera to a vanishing point of black, impenetrable, dark solidity. Their path is illuminated, a line of sight intended to confirm for the viewer that there is no future ahead for these figures. There are only thin slivers of light decreasing in length on the left side of the backs and shoulders of the three riders in the rear and curving across the head and flanks of the horse on the left which bears a triangular shadow into darkness. These slivers suggest the outlines of people, but preclude recognition. There is no possibility of knowing them. Edward Curtis selected this photograph as the first image in the initial volume of his 40 volume series the North American Indian. His caption reads, the thought which this picture is meant to convey is that the Indians as a race, already shorn in their tribal strength and stripped of their primitive dress, 
are passing into the darkness of an unknown future. The claim that Curtis is documenting or reflecting history denies its contrivance, the formal qualities of careful photographic composition, which created its fictions, fictions that persist. The form and practice of Curtis haunts photographic representations of indigeneity in the United States. Dying, dead, vanishing, vanished, or vanquished. Choose one of the above. Contemporary indigenous artists are rendering indigenous existences visible, of refusal to die in the face of attempts to eradicate them. Cara Romero, Shema Huevi argues that, quote, native photography is in many ways about looking back to the histories of photography, film, and pop culture that have and continue to shape a national consciousness about who native people are, how they dress, look, and act. Deeply oversimplified, such perceptions stem from what the Sioux intellectual Vindaloria Jr. called the Edward Curtis Indian. As an undergraduate, Romero initially intended to major in cultural anthropology as a means for challenging such perceptions. But when she took a course in photography, she not only fell in love with the medium, but understood how the photograph had been used as a weapon. Realizing the power of photography as a storytelling medium, she concluded that it could do more than cultural anthropology in words. This is a series of hers called Water Memory. Romero seeks to indigenize photography. She's embracing a form that has a history as a medium of colonization, using photography as a tool to resist Eurocentric narratives and as a means for opening audiences' perspectives to the fascinating diversity of living indigenous peoples. She fuses time-honored and culturally specific symbols with 21st century ideas and affirms that indigenous culture is continually evolving and imminently permanent. Acknowledging that indigenous stories are entrenched, are entrenched in ancestry and traditional ways of knowing, she's interested in how these stories manifest today, growing and evolving with ensuing generations. One of the narrative themes of Romero's photography concerns the cultural landscape, resource extraction, and climate change. In addition to her work as a photographer and artist, Romero directs the indigeneity, sorry, the indigeneity program at Bioneers 
It's a non-profit organization based in Santa Fe dedicated to issues of climate change. She emphasizes the importance of indigenous sciences, traditional ecological knowledge, and cultural arts, and represents ontological ties to the land, inseparableness, she says, from our waterways, watersheds, and the landscapes from which we emerge. The Hemerhuevi Reservation, where Romero was raised, is on the California side of Lake Havasu on the Colorado River, bordered on the east by Arizona. Like Morgan Lake, Lake Havasu is promoted as a space for recreational boating and fishes. Although the California Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment has issued a fish eating advisory because of the presence of methylmercury and selenium in and on fish bodies. There is no public acknowledgement that this lake was created from indigenous dispossession. The construction of the Parker Dam on the Colorado River between 1934 and 1938 flooded the Hemawevi out of their ancestral lands to create Lake Havasu. Now, Romero describes Lake Havasu as feeling haunted to her. There are homes and floodplains below, she says. And when I submerge myself there, I feel all that water memory. There are multiple timescales at work in this photograph. Water memory is an example of the simultaneous layering of experiences of past and future. There is a haunting of this particular flood in this particular place, but there are also resonances with the motifs of floods or deluges from mythologies and creation stories of many cultures. The significance of the ancestral is registered in the Santa Clara Pueblo corn dance finery worn by the two figures in the water and in the prominence of the evergreen bough in the foreground. Conifers are born in the corn dance as a symbol of life. Preservation and reenactment of the ancestral, of pastness, is also about living in the present. One way in which Romero counters the exploitative past of photography is through the relationships she has with those she photographs. Her practice is collaborative. Her photographic subjects are friends and relatives who share an understanding of her projects. In Water Memory here, the sculpture, Rose B. Simpson, who's Santa Clara Pueblo, and her son, Santiago, are the models. The present is also embodied in Romero's experimental photographic practice. Romero shot water memory in the swimming pool of Santa Fe's El Rey Inn, accompanied by a diver. Santiago and his mother were shot separately, 
Santiago first, and then Rose Simpson's image was added via Photoshop. The result is uncanny. Romero combines bold colors, experimental lighting, photo illustration, she says, to explore ideas of how the supernatural world overlaps with the quotidian, adopting what she describes as multi-layered visual architectures that invite viewers to abandon preconceived notions about native art, culture, and peoples, and recognize, quote, the resilience and beauty of thriving cultures. Are these figures drowning or floating or rising in turquoise water? Were they pushed? Our eyes are drawn from the dark depths upwards towards the light, the source of which is a mystery, but suggestive of a resurrection. Bubbles of oxygen signal both figures are breathing, but are we witnessing their last breaths? Or like the Afro-futurist nautical myths of Drexia, have the progeny of the drowned learned to breathe and survive underwater? Such ambiguity is characteristic of Romero's work, for she insists that art can invite people into a conversation without imposing an answer. So Romero is not simply engaged in acts of resurrecting the past and its subjects, but in the creation of a complex set of relations between past, present, and future. Meanings, resonances, and associations are multiple and elusive, too elusive for any singular conclusion. The scene of water memory is beautiful and unnerving in its evocation of an apocalyptic, an apocalyptic past, apocalyptic present, and apocalyptic future. Indigenous futurisms, originally coined in a literary context, has become increasingly present in the world of indigenous art as practitioners seek ways to transcend the limits of binary thought inherent in the traditional versus modern polarities that stifle alternative imaginings of temporal possibilities. Because people don't usually think of native folks and then the future in the same breath, Will Wilson says he finds the concept useful as a destabilizing term. A younger generation of indigenous artists, the students that Will Wilson teaches, talk about their practice as remembering the future. And Wilson also wants to think about his work in this way. Memory is being understood and evoked not only as an individual and or collective communal experience, but practiced and enacted as a narrative form, a technique and a strategy. Nick Estes, citizen of the Lower Brule Sioux tribe, issued a call, quote, not just to imagine, but to demand 
the emancipation of the earth from capital in his book, Our History is the Future. This is a multivalent politics of struggle that is also shaping artistic practice and the politics of narration. The terms Wilson uses most often to describe himself is a trans-customary DNA artist. As anthropology and other Western disciplines have situated indigenous cultural practice as either traditional or contemporary, he explains trans-customary is the idea that there is a gray space, a spectrum, Work that we make today is informed by a tradition, but tradition is ever evolving. You can have both traditional and contemporary influences informing one another through practice. Wilson's work also responds to the ways in which photography has been used as a mechanism of colonization. And like Romero, though in different ways, Wilson seeks to indigenize the form, practice, and process of the medium. Photography as a scientific means of categorization, he argues, cannot be separated from the history of the social, political, economic, and ecological colonization of North, Native North Americans, because it has been used to classify and reinforce theories of racial superiority, which strengthen anthropological discourse, positioning American Indians as primitive others. Autoimmune response, air, 2004 to 2021, is a continually evolving project of more than 65 integral and related artworks, which has generated another series that I mentioned earlier called Connecting the Dots. Wilson has chosen photographic locations chiefly from the Dineta, the ancestral homelands of the Diné and the Navajo Indian reservation within it. Lands in the Four Corners region of the U.S., now known as northwestern New Mexico, southwestern Colorado, southeastern Utah, and northeastern Arizona. Beginning in the 1930s, there were increasing federal incursions into Diné life, land, and resource use. Navajo land was extensively surveyed and mapped by various arms of the federal government. The U.S. Soil Conservation Service determined that the land that had long sustained the Dina was unsuitable as a pasture for livestock and instituted a brutal stock reduction program, forcibly slaughtering hundreds of thousands of sheep. Instead, the federal government defined the land as, quote, materially and ideologically suited 
for extractive industrialism. Mineral, oil, and mining surveys escalated. Surveyors, prospectors, mine operators, and millers invaded Dine Bikayar. The Navajo Nation eventually became the battery powering cities in Arizona, California, and Nevada. The source of power for the Cold War weapons industry and for commercial nuclear power. The legacy has been death and disease. The byproducts of uranium and coal mining and processing, nuclear weapons production facilities, and atomic test sites have been irradiated landscapes and exposure to contaminated air, water, housing, animals, vegetation, and soil. As mines, mills, nuclear facilities, and weapons production sites have been abandoned, it has become clear that cleaning up radioactive and toxic wastes are so expensive that it may never be accomplished. As early as 1988, engineers at the Energy Department were referring to, quote, national sacrifice zones, end of quote. But who exactly is being sacrificed? There are over 500 abandoned mines on the Navajo Nation. Air, autoimmune response, is an alternative cartography, contesting the maps of surveyors, prospectors, mine operators and millers that colonized space for resource extraction. Some of Wilson's locations disrupt settler colonial ways of seeing and knowing, embodied in places that have become icons of the global tourist industry. This photograph, for example, destabilizes the comforting familiarity of the Grand Canyon. Not only because three figures on the rim of the canyon are all wearing breathing apparatus, but also because they are looking over the confluence of the Little Colorado and Colorado rivers, which are actually below here. They are looking from the Navajo Nation side of the Grand Canyon. It is a perspective that not a lot of people see because it's remote and you have to travel through a lot of Navajo land to get there. The story here is not the disengagement of the stranger and tourist, but of family, home, and relations to the land over generations. This place is close to where Wilson's family had their winter sheep camp. Through metaphorical self-portraits, created using terrestrial and aerial photography, Wilson's cartography reveals radioactive geographies. 
He has photographed, among others, the disposal site for radioactive tailings related to copper and, and uranium mi mining near Mexican Hat, Utah, and managed by the United States Department of Energy. He's also photographed hydraulic fracking operations at Aneth, Utah, and the White Mesa Uranium Mill operated by Energy Fuels at White Mesa, Utah. July the 16th, 1945, August the 6th, 1945, August the 9th, 1945. These dates will come to haunt the first photograph in the autoimmune response series. They are a measure of continuity with the primary characteristics of Western imperialism settler colonialism and racial capitalism. The profound disregard for human and non-human forms of life, the willingness to embrace mass death and environmental and ecological destruction. As Ashil Mbembe has observed in its dank underbelly, modernity has been an interminable war on life. These dates also augured a future, a massive increase in the rate of resource extraction and the beginning of a, the nuclear age of weaponry and energy production, during which the federal government and mining companies rendered the Diné exploitable and expendable laboring bodies. In short, waste. Autoimmune response is a performative and installation project. Wilson writes that the series takes as its subject the quixotic relationship between a post-apocalyptic Diné Navajo man and the devastatingly beautiful but toxic environment he inhabits. Wilson characterizes the series as an allegorical investigation of the extraordinarily rapid transformation of indigenous lifeways, the disease it has caused and strategies of response that enable cultural survival. If the work confronts us with a post-apocalyptic future, then it is a future grounded in the long history of the contamination of the Southwest, which constitutes the present. A panorama, Air One, this is the first in the series, is an almost mural-like inkjet print. The original measures more than three meters in length. This is a landscape as a vast, ominous expanse, eerie in atmosphere, apocalyptic in scale, segmented by a barbed wire fence, which marks the horizon. Into the left side, Wilson has composited the Trinity explosion, which rises and in reflection on a liquid surface, 
descends through light on either side of the horizon. The composition of light, the composition of light and shadow, the carefully controlled exposure capture other cloud towers and their reflections to the right. Cloud forms that resemble or echo those that rose over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. How to render visible what travels through the air? How to see what is invisible to the eye? I've been talking as if these cloud formations are only symbolic, but in Wilson's work, clouds are exposed as evidence. They are all environmental and political. They are lethal. <clears throat> Airborne toxins like the colored smoke in a wind tunnel highlight the dynamics of power. Toxic clouds colonize the air we breathe, across different places and durations, from the incident to epochal latencies. Wilson places himself in the series as the Diné man we know only as the protagonist. The artist performs a post-apocalyptic Navajo man's journey through a vacant world a survivor placed in landscapes of detritus and decay. In Air One here, there are two images of Wilson. The protagonist is frequently doubled and sometimes trebled in other photographs. This profile of the protagonist in the foreground is the only image in the entire series where we see him without a mask and breathing apparatus a portrait superimposed against and seemingly somewhat apart from the landscape. Wilson as Diné artist and performer wears a crisp white shirt and has his hair tied back in a sitziele. An expression of serious determination and deep thought suggests contemplation of the enormity of the project ahead a cognitive mapping and consideration of the questions that will propel the protagonist forward and into multiple roles as a time traveler, an explorer, scientist, hero, and potential healer. Where has everyone gone? What cataclysm has transformed the familiar and strange landscape, he wonders, why has the land become toxic to him? How will he respond, survive, reconnect to the earth? I show this detail to make it easier to see the protagonist inside the fence, beginning his journey and wearing the face mask and breathing apparatus that will become his signature costume. He is doubled by this mirrored landscape right arm lifted in a Diné gesture of sprinkling pollen, a ritual of blessing and of healing. How to think and how to represent that which has vast spatial and temporal variance in scale. 
It was clear by 1970 that the uranium industry was producing a devastating and deadly epidemic of a variety of forms of cancers and other radiation-related diseases, not limited to the men and women working for the mines and mills, but having effects outside of the industry. Radioactive geographies have been difficult to map spatially and temporally at a variety of scales, from the scale of Dine Bikaya to the more local scales, where the risk of toxic contamination from individual tailing piles move with the rain, wind, and animals. Toxic contamination is ubiquitous, found in the building materials of homes and at the most intimate scale of all, in the cells and the organs of bodies. How to measure the timescales of uranium exposure from the penetration of the cells of bodies, human and non-human, to the millennia of potential contamination. Uranium toxicity has a half-life of 4.5 billion years. These are the temporalities that haunt Wilson's project. The title autoimmune response references not only the causal relations between the toxicity of the environment and human diseases where the immune system attacks the body, but also to how environmental pollution is causing an autoimmune response in the planet itself. In air five, the figure is twinned, evoking the hero twins of the Navajo creation story. Wilson is doubled in the foreground, heads and shoulders at a 45 degree angle, heads turned outward from the photograph, bloodshot eyes looking accusingly out, implicating the viewer. Who will accept responsibility? The tubes of their breathing apparatus seem to curl and flap uselessly and appear to be attached to each other's masks. There are no oxygen tanks. Are they breathing each other's exhalations? Their hair, faces, shirts, and masks are covered in what we imagine to be radioactive dust, ash. Are we looking at humans who've been rendered disposable? Waste? Are we looking at a death sentence? A planetary death in a palette of red, white, and blue? The landscape is liquid, leached out. It can only contaminate as it is incapable of supporting life. The two figures are sharply defined, exposed in multiple ways. Their eyes stare demanding recognition, a witnessing, a reckoning.
While continuing to complete his aerial photographic survey of the over 500 abandoned uranium mines located on the Navajo Nation, Will Wilson's latest iteration of the autoimmune response series feature an installation of a Hogan greenhouse entitled Autoimmune Response Lab, in which indigenous food plants are growing. Having focused so far on the toxic legacy of uranium extraction and processing on Dinedar, bearing witness to these sites and the frontline communities affected by them, Wilson is developing what he hopes will serve as a catalyst for designing innovative interdisciplinary ways to understand what remediation can be and can become. Wilson has installed his air lab in exhibitions as a post-apocalyptic take on the sacred DNA dwelling, the Hogan. For example, Wilson collaborated with the University of Utah's Red Butte Gardens to turn his steel Hogan into a greenhouse for growing the Four Corners potato and other plant species that remove heavy metals and toxins from the soil. When the Hogan greenhouse was installed at the Visual Arts Center of the University of Texas, Austin, he partnered with Marika Alvarado, a Lipan Mescalero Apache medicine woman, founder of the Earth Institute of Indigenous Cultures and Teachings. Drawing upon indigenous sciences and cultural knowledge, Wilson hopes that AirLab will serve as a platform for voices of resilience and resistance creating a vision for a transition to restorative systems of economy and memory making. He sees the project as a pollinator, expanding to create formats for community exchange and production that question and challenge the social, cultural, and environmental systems that surround us. Thank you. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you, Dr. Carby. What you movingly showcase to us is a template of resistance and the power of art to capture, address, and challenge environmental racism. Move the template anywhere, to India, for instance, to the repressive existence and vulnerabilities of the indigenous peoples or Adivasis I come from, and the features are replicated despite distinctive context. A movement needs all kinds of people, 
all kinds of actors, and today seems apt to recognize the contribution of artists like Will Wilson, Kara Romero, Kanupa Hanskaluga, and the many Adivasi artists, artisans, writers, poets, illustrators, photographers, filmmakers, musicians, I collaborate with in my work as a publisher and cultural documentarian. This template in the hands of cultural practitioners become magnifying glasses, which when catches the sun can kindle a fire. Art as activism is a response, an act of marking one's protest, but mostly is bearing witness to intergenerational, historical and contemporary onslaughts on our bodies, lands, environments and identities. And that's how and why I founded Adivani, The First Voices, a platform for Adivasi expression and assertion that came out of a threshold I had reached in my lived experience of discrimination and exclusion. Not an aha eureka moment, but a tipping point. The Adivani idea was born out of the audacity to say enough is enough. It was defiance, confronting invisibility and erasure that the first indigenous-run initiative of publishing and archiving in English was set up in India. My work became a project of representation and claiming space for our peoples, but also a personal journey inward into questions of identity and belonging. Adivasis did not need to document their literature, scholarship, or culture because we were living documents ourselves. But we now need to to counter dominion, not only the dominion of the texts of the past, but of the dominion we live in and what is to come. Where does the art in our activism come from? A physical uprooting of forced migration, dispossession and displacement sever our ties with home, the known ecosystems where identities and stories germinate and spread. When bulldozers and excavators raise our homes to the ground, tear down our forests and lands to make way for roads, mining, extractive industries, or military camps, they demolish the tangible remnants of traditional knowledge and our ancestry. The architecture, the sacred groves, the dancing grounds, all spaces that bear testimony to and hold culture. When trauma replaces the familiarity of home, when survival substitutes security, the joys of living and expression evaporate. New locales and languages bring new threads to culture. When protest slogans replace traditional songs, new facets of culture are created. One would argue that people are the carriers of culture and that traditions and stories should go with us wherever we go. They do, but how can we sing harvest songs when our forced or circumstantial displacement makes of us road construction workers or stone quarry miners? Living in the peripheries of extractivism within toxic radioactive environments, how can we sing of open skies, forests and rivers that dot our homelands when we are confined to others' homes as domestic workers or living as economic refugees in cities? Sure, we could sing them, but when we are detached from the context where our stories come from, 
or our songs and dances originate, they become an imagined realm, a world that seems distant, elapsed, and that's a tragedy. This is an encroachment and takeover by dominant cultures, extractivism, environmental racism, further marginalizing indigenous ways and effectively dislodging more than just bodies. In this, art as activism becomes a continuous process of remembering and reminding ourselves of our ancestry and the lineage of struggle, the inevitable ways of living and surviving as expendable peoples. We may be illiterate, coming from a tradition of orality, but we are not bereft of stories and knowledge. I was at the Jaipur Literature Festival a couple of years ago, being invited to speak on three panels. Standing in line to collect my speaker badge, people in front and behind me started making small talk. They were the usual niceties of where one was from and what brought us here. After I had mentioned my publishing outfit, often by Adivasis, and that I was Adivasi myself, one man responded, ah, now I know. You remind me of my chaiwala, a roadside tea seller. Nothing more, nothing less. I wasn't sure what he meant or how to react or respond. And this wasn't the first time I was subjected to something like that. But I knew it was something that would linger on in my thoughts and churn in my stomach long enough for me to engage with. Once we are discovered or identified as a divasi or indigenous, most dominant people automatically assume power over us and think they are entitled to tell us off or even tell us how we should create our art. One of the sessions at the same literature festival I was on was called A Room of One's Own, drawing from Virginia Woolf's iconic 1929 essay where she says, a woman must have money and a room of her own if she is to write fiction. It was an all-woman writers panel, and when it was my turn to speak, I retold the Chaiwala incident and stated that I was an Adivasi and I would remind you of your Chaiwala, your domestic help, your laborer, because that is the reality we are at in the established modern socioeconomic stratification index. But there is no shame in being that or there because it brings food to the table and keeps our daily lives in motion. So for us, it's not about a room of one's own, but about a roof over our heads. And that's where our stories come from. My room then becomes the tools I need to document in, language, literacy, and the medium I use to put it down, paper and pen, a computer, a camera, an audio, or a video recording. We may come from the margins and remain in the peripheries and may only be the one-dimensional labor class you see us for, but that does not mean we have no histories, aspirations, opinions, character, or personality. We have accounts that challenge every misconstrued notion about Adivasis, set records straight and advocate for Adivasi being. Then again, our narratives are not just about misery, pain, and exploitation. We have a rich legacy of intellectual, imaginative, creative, poetic, romantic, and thrilling stories that need to be retold, if only we had a room of our own on our own terms. 
Creating this room is how we begin to claim and reclaim the reproduction of indigenous knowledges. And this is the art in the activism of my work. In a climate of governmental neglect, corporate conquests, gagging orders, curbing of freedom of expression and dissent, surveillance of culture, stigmatization, criminalization, prejudice, helplessness, threat, and risk. How can artists be creative? In the Christmas of 2004, African-American writer Toni Morrison, in a phone call with a friend, expressed how the political climate was debilitating, rendering her unproductive. It was then that a friend interjected and exclaimed, I quote, this is precisely the time when artists go to work, not when everything is fine, but in times of dread, that's our job. Morrison later in an essay recounted this incident, recalling the artists who had done their work in gulags, prison cells, hospital beds, who did their work while hounded, exiled, detested and humiliated, and those who were executed. She reinforced her friend's advice, reinstating, quote, this is precisely the time when artists go to work. There is no time for despair, no place for self-pity, no need for silence, no room for fear. We speak, we write, we do language. That is how civilizations heal. In that, art as activism is a celebration of human resolve, a way to rehumanize us. My work attempts to answer the question, how will we recognize we are Adivasi? when everything that makes us so is taken away from us or is lost. By protecting our lands and environments, we are not just saving the forests or fighting against capitalism. We are in fact, and most of all, trying to preserve ourselves and the deep and ancient roots that link us to our earth. We are resisting identity loss. The arts, storytelling, performance, singing, dancing, writing, and speaking are all extensions of ourselves and are expressions of identity assertion and being. We are simultaneously addressing cultural loss and cultural sustenance. Indigenous artists across the globe are building a cartology of co-resistances etching a map of dignity, resilience, solidarity, and resonances, drawing linkages between land, environment, and people, those who protect and those who expropriate, and the systems that uphold and benefit from such a tussle. And in the space between the struggle lies hope and resurgence, uplifted by artists. A cartology of co-resistances is a testimony of the resilient human spirit, battered, bruised, and rising again. In that, art as activism not just become commentaries of our times, but our memory and conscience, each other's compasses. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for your presentations, Hazel and Ruby. Uh, for those, we will now open the floor to questions from the audience, uh, both here and online. As I mentioned earlier, for those online, please do type short questions into the Q&A box and we'll try to answer as many as possible. 
Uh, for those here, please raise your hand and I'll select questions in rounds. And we've got around, yeah, 25, 20 minutes uh, for hopefully some lively discussions. We'll take some questions first online. A question online from Enamul Mazid Khan Sadiq. Um, and they said, indigeneity is continuous, but so is the project of the empire that keeps exploiting and abusing Mother Nature and her children. Um, so we're poisoned not with just with the pollution of environment, but also creating divisions and conflicts in many indigenous nations. And we see the blood of our own brothers and sisters spilled by their own premier capitalist gains. Is remembering enough as a form of resistance? And how can we fight back stronger? Very good question. <laughs> Would you like to go first? Well, one short answer I hoped that is no remembering isn't enough um, which is what the photographers the artists I was was dealing with um, they are enacting not just artistic work but also activists um, you know in their own right but it is important to be able to challenge our dominant cultural memories, those that have, uh, you know, excluded not just certain peoples, but also the history of the brutality of settler colonialism and racial capitalism, which continues. So yes, of course, memory is, is not enough um, and neither is it all um, that these artists are, are, are practicing. Maybe if you want to respond. If we look at India and we look at us just beginning to write, we are also looking at remembering for ourselves whatever has been documenting, more documented thus far, has been a remembrance from the dominant peoples who also understand that in the power of documenting is how you reinforce feudal systems, or even the narratives that are convenient. So for us to remember or re-remember is one way to challenge and say, perhaps your narratives are not accurate and this is how we know ourselves and this is how we tell our stories. So even when it comes to the same mediums of remembering in ways in which we make it tangible, we understand that there is always going to be a conflict because the way we remember is never going to be good enough if it is either tested in terms of academic scholarship or even language, oh, your English is so basic, oh, this is not scholarly enough, and there are things like that. So yes, that is one aspect. So you remember, but you remember differently. You say you are going to be remembering authentically, if that's mm -hmm. even possible. Oh, we've got a question here, uh, down below. Again, please state your name and affiliation so we know who you are. <laughs> uh, my name is Despina. I'm uh, studying my master's in social policy. Um, sorry if this was uh, mentioned already, but I'm wondering how you acquired the photographers that you used in this presentation. 
how I acquired. Like, like, did they, how did you find these photographers that were used in this presentation? Oh, uh, so I've, I've used um, an, a number of sources, um, art museums, especially those attached to um, universities, where not just the uh, artworks, but also all the paperwork um, and uh, archives that go with them. And then there's also going to exhibitions um, and um, I don't know, does that, is that when you, when you say acquire, it sounds like, I mean, you know, I've used, there are a number, a number of art museums are beginning to change their practices in terms of what works they are, you know, they are keeping. So um, there are, you know, a number of universe, a number of um, art museums in the United States, the Hood Museum, at Dartmouth is one of them. Um, there are a number of museums in the Southwest, Indigenous art museums. Um, and there's a range of other museums because I'm actually not just looking at the work of Indigenous artists, but also Black artists too. So I call on a, on, on a whole range of materials from, from, from there, if that's what you're asking me. Yeah. Um, well, you know, the thing, it, the, the project I'm working on is huge. <laughs> so in terms of actually making a cohesive, coherent lecture, I focused on one particular area. And I think you also use the word template, right? I mean, we're talking about trying to um, map complex histories where you can give a rich enough account of what is happening in one place rather than some sort of indigenous quote unquote survey. I mean, there are what, over 500, um, I think perhaps even more different indigenous communities in the US. And I'm very careful not to collapse these extremely different histories into one. So I try to deal um, not just with specific plates and specific peoples, but also specific issues like uranium and, and, and coal. Um, there are other, I don't know, there are other avenues perhaps. Being here in London, people are familiar with stories that were actually picked up with the, by the Guardian newspaper yeah. about this area called Cancer Alley in the United States, in Louisiana. That's, that's another area um, that it's important to, you know, investigate. Um, and I talk about that as another example of environmental racism. But, but you, ha you have to dwell um, on the, the details of place and people um, to, to, to get a sort of specific history um, of, of what is happening. So... I, yeah, I don't think a you know a Zoom survey, which is actually what often happens yeah. um, with people, you know, black art is this, indigenous art is, and it and it and it isn't. Um, I'm trying to be extremely 
specific, uh, in re- particularly in relation when you're talking about photography. You know, I tried to cover how Edward Curtis um, has dominated photography of quote unquote, you know, the Native American Indian. And this is one, these are two responses to his work. Um, two different uh, artists from two very different um, indigenous communities, one on, in California and the other in um, the Four Corners region in Dinata. You're welcome. And just to add, I mean, I guess in your talk, the specificity you were mentioning, I think also helps to um, let us see the nuances of these different artists. I hope so. Yeah, right, that they have specific stories and narratives that they're telling, which makes more complex, which makes more complex how we understand environmental racism. And I showed such a small part of their work. (laughs) I mean, just in that air Mm. series, there are over 65 Mm. photographs. Um, this is not even counting Air Lab. Not e- I didn't show you anything from connecting that. I mean, you know, these these are, these are enormous bodies of of work. Um, scrupulous, as I tried to say, alternative cartographies, alternative ways, not just of remembering, as the last um, questioner suggested, but of completely remapping what we understand geographically and temporally about uh, the history of settler colonialism and its legacies. Does that help? Yeah. There was a hand here at the front. Um, The mic is coming. Uh, Beautiful. Um, I have two questions. One is, um, one theme that emerged quite strongly is, is land, and that's quite a material struggle. So I wondered if you could say a little bit about the kind of, basically what struggles are currently being fought uh, around the toxicity that you described and some of the land issues that you've been uh, evoking. And then the other question is, which you kind of already have answered, but um, given the, the kind of visceral and, and in some ways horrific kind of toxicity that we're talking about, what why did you choose to focus on art specifically? Um, yeah, those are my two questions. Um, the artworks I'm dealing with um, are very powerful uh, renditions of attempting to reveal what is not normally recognized. And um, the artworks work both to um, educate specific populations about what has happened to them and the history of why this has happened to them, uh, as well as suggesting ways of thinking about remediation, restoration, and uh, questions of futurity. Um, But as usual, when people ask two questions, I've answered the second one, and now I'm trying (laughs) to remember the first. Oh, land. Well, land is absolutely key in in the question of settler colonialism. Um, In terms of dispossession, um, and then, I mean, dispossession by the removal of people, dispossession by the destruction of 
the environment by which people have sustained themselves. And in this case, in Dinaitar, the way in which pasture land uh, was reconfigured by the federal government as land fit only for, for uh, resource extraction. So these, these, these struggles are ongoing. Um, they are again, you know, seen very vividly in um, the struggles over the, the DAPL pipeline in terms of um, the way the pipeline was shifted away from the white communities of Bismarck to go through um, Siouxland. These, these lands are continually being exploited. Um, and these protests are met, are being met by international indigenous formations. So at the DAPL protests um, taking place in Dakota, where the state met peaceful protesters with the full force of its might in terms of violence. Those protesters, when you actually looked at who they were, were an international collective. So there were, there were indigenous protests coming from Latin America, peoples who are um, fighting resource extraction uh, in the Amazon, in other areas, um, in mining. There were uh, indigenous peoples there from Nigeria uh, fighting the fossil fuel industry. So, you know, why land is this historical issue? But this is what corporations um, and governments are about, resource extraction. Right, the reason the relation of land to the climate catastrophe um, that we're facing it's 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 central. Um, does that make yeah. sense? Do you have any questions online? Okay, do you take one? We got a question from Alpa Shah who is um, a research theme convener um, at the Inequalities Institute. Um, she said, this seems like an incredible moment to think comparatively between indigenous people displaced by settler, settler colonialism in North America and the situation of indigenous people in India where brutal militarized processes of dispossession are ongoing, often carried out by indigenous people themselves as chief ministers of state and in collaboration with capital. Um, how might we compare similarities and differences of the role of art in contemporary indigenous activism and how this is unfolding. Um, so this is for both the Gisela and Ruby. So when Hazel showed us this presentation, immediately many of the issues behind the art was something I could relate to, including the residential school. If the last one closed in 1998, we still have schools like this opening and people and our government's actually endorsing this. And in that, I see we may not know what's happening across these large lands. If you look at India, every area of indigenous 
peoples does not even know what's happening anywhere else. So for me now, I don't know how we can really collaborate in terms of bringing art and art activism together. But just listening to these stories, if it's just resonances, I think that's more than enough. I mean, someone needs to be talking about this before we can actually bring us together. But that it is so similar, it is frightening that our issues are so similar. I mean, in India, of course, we know that it is also the government not recognizing us as indigenous in terms mm. of the UN Declaration of Indigenous Rights. So even though they have signed it, uh, mm. they signed ILO 107, for ILO 169, they said, no, there are no indigenous peoples in India, everyone is indigenous. So the thing is, every attempt to assert ourselves as indigenous is kind of shut down. So here we are even trying to prove or live as indigenous. How then are people outside going to know that India even has indigenous people? So if you're trying to build collaborations, whether it be art or political alliances or whatever it be, you're never going to look at India because the official stance is there are no indigenous peoples in India. So you will bypass India and then you may go to Nepal because they have signed ILO 169, the only Asian country to have. So how then within all of this politics, do we even come together to celebrate creativity? Hazel, do you have an answer? <laughs> well, um, I mean, one, one, of the, one of the questions, one of the issues raised by this question is in fact the issue of building solidarity building alliances, um, needing to understand, in fact, who is on the front lines of these battles against extractionism, against fossil fuels, who is on the front lines of actually trying to protect land, who is on the front lines of actually trying to find alternative, sustainable um, modes of, of agriculture, of living in harmony um, with the environment, um, with non-humans. Um, it seems that there is a lot to learn, be it from Indigenous people in general, from the global south. The global north, um, the dominant peoples in the global north, need to think about solidarity with those who are on the front lines of these of these battles. I think on, on that note, um, as it is coming to, to 8pm, um, it's probably a good time to, to draw this to an end, unfortunately. I'm sure we could have gone on and on with questions. Um, but it's been a great pleasure to have the opportunity uh, for me and hopefully for all of us here um, in the room and online to hear from both of you. Uh, thank you for taking the time to, to be with us, uh, to join us. Um, and we're so grateful that you've taken time out of your very busy schedules uh, wow. to be here. Um, so please join me again in thanking our two speakers for such a wonderful um, event. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next.
We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.